1: high-profile public figures, and regular folks like me. You love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show.
0: Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to have a place to talk politics and culture and important stuff without a bunch of screamers. And that way we can also have a little bit of nuance, which Corey and I very much do like. We can also do some deep dives. We don't mind having fun either. And actually, I think we have a lot of fun on this program, come to think of it. (laughs) And by the way, if you like the show, tell a friend. Actually, seriously, listeners recommending our program to their friends and family who might like it is the number way word gets out about what we're doing here. I am your host, Jessica Stone. So glad to be cheering for the Atlanta Braves in the (sighs) World Series, alongside my faithful Mets fan co-host, Corey Nathan.
1: Now I'm not having fun. This is no fun. Yeah. Actually, in all seriousness, I'm a big Freddie Freeman fan. He's he's easy to root for, even if you're a Mets fan like me. So I was happy for that guy to win one. Yeah.
0: Okay. And I'm totally a poser because it's really my husband who's the Atlanta Braves (laughs) fan. Uh, We do have a few Tomahawk Chocks going on in our house, and the three-year-old did stay up late to watch the World Series last night. So, But anyway, I digress. I want to introduce all of you uh, listening today to our fabulous guest, Douglas M. Johnston, Jr. I put his whole name in our introduction because there are a few other Doug Johnstons there, but no one with the breadth of experience in religion and diplomacy, uh, and no one who can say that he's that he and I have known each other for 10 years or so, right? He is the president emeritus and founder of the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. He is the author of numerous books on faith and diplomacy, but most recently he published Mountaintops and My Ties. So it's got a great cover because it's got a mountaintop and my ties, and you can't get much better than, than those two combined. I accept if you read through this, you're going to find out so much about him. We learned a lot about him, I think, reading this book. It is part biography, part memoir. We learn about how he started at ICRD, uh, the acronym for the International Center. And in 2008, he was identified in Christianity Today as the father of faith-based diplomacy. He's also a distinguished grad of the U.S. Naval Academy, has degrees in public administration and master's and a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard. He's a real slouch. He has (laughs) served in senior positions in the government, military and private sector. Plus, he taught at Harvard. They not only educated them, they had him back. That speaks well of you, Doug. So thank you so much for joining us uh, and sharing your life story really with us in this book. Great to have you on.
2: Great to be here.
0: So you moved around a lot, and I didn't move around as much as you did, but I do identify with you a little bit in what it might have given you. I suspect it gave you a lot of skills that you just can't be taught. How would you say being a military kid, moving around a lot, impacted your career choices and maybe your ability to work with people?
2: I I think what one trades in that sort of... uh, Uh, scenario is you trade roots for versatility. And so I I think you're right. Implicit in what you say is you are probably end up a bit more comfortable with new situations, engaging those situations, and certainly the interpersonal skills that go along with the need to survive.
1: Well, I, I was curious with all the moving around your family did, and uh, you, you describe a lot of exploits in mountaintops and my ties and, and some trouble even that you got into as a kid. You still not only got into the Naval Academy, you ended up doing quite well. So, How did you pull it all together and to be able to get into Annapolis and then, and then do so well when you were there?
2: I think uh, a large part of that has to do with the fact that, with the challenge of moving just about every year on the way up, maybe every two years, there were always not only did you have to sort of reprove yourself on athletic teams, but you also were you were subjected to uh, different learning environments. And I did early on decide that I that I uh, wanted to do something interesting in life, and I think it was. uh, Sophomore year of high school, a substitute teacher came into the class in world history and turned out he was a retired Navy captain and he brought his Annapolis yearbook with him. And I had never heard of Annapolis or the Naval Academy, despite the fact that my father was in the Navy. And I took one look through that yearbook and I decided that's where I wanted to go. And then from then on, it was a single-minded focus on getting there. And I think one of the things that helped along the way was my senior year of high school, dad was stationed in a location, Dahlgren, Virginia, where there was no accredited high school in the area. And all I needed was one more course to graduate. So I ended up going to a prep school for uh, my senior year. It was called Bullish Prep. It was in Silver Spring, Maryland. And it was a school where uh, a lot of the star athletes that the Naval Academy was recruiting would send those athletes there to ensure that they could pass the entrance exam. And so I was able to reap the benefits of that kind of instruction. And the only opportunity I really had to get in was by a presidential appointment. The president has the opportunity to appoint 75 midshipmen each year, and those are done on the basis of uh, your standing on the exams the top 75 would, would get in. And so I, I competed on that basis. I ended up standing seventh. And so I, I was in with no problem. But at one point along the way, I went down and spent a day knocking on doors in the House of Representatives and the Senate seeking an appointment. And without any kind of political roots whatsoever, those doors were effectively closed <laughs> so so that's how i got in yeah
1: uh, it's uh, somebody trying to go door to door to to congress members today that's a that's amazing so was that during um the eisenhower administration
2: uh, it's 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 back before probably before the capitol was built
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> seems
1: like 100 years ago wow how about that
0: I am so impressed with the level of detail in this book, Doug. I mean, you take us into conversations all over the world that are highly, highly difficult and challenging. You take us into a nuclear submarine and talk about what makes it work. How did you remember all of that detail and put it in the book?
2: I'm not quite sure because as I was just telling Corey, you know I can't remember where I parked my car last <laughs> night. but a lot of the incidents I describe or the opportunities that came along were I, I, I'm not quite so sure they were so they were meaningful enough that it was not difficult to reconstruct. Mm. Mm. and but once i reconstructed i was very diligent about going back and making sure that no exaggeration had taken place either in my telling or remembering over the years and so you know like i i know that i had uh, uh i had achieved uh in, in boy scouts uh, 72 merit badges for example out of 105 i was going for all of them but i can only prove uh in the cold light of day 57 so that number goes from 72 to 57 and so <laughs> you know the, the fish wasn't a foot and a half long it was only a foot long so so it's just you know because i think it, i think it's terribly important especially in a uh, in a memoir or autobiography sort of context that you have all of your facts straight because all all someone has to do is to point to one incident where they're not and it's sort of uh, Puts a cloud over the whole effort, so I think that's it's important to be accurate.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we spoke to the founder, to the current leaders of the ICRD. They talk about uh, their own religious experiences. Some of them are Muslim, some of them are Quaker. You're pretty uh, solidly identified as an evangelical in the Washington D.C. community, but you don't talk about like a faith experience very early in the book. What what for you really? sort of shaped and catalyzed your Christian faith?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, I always tended to find my way to Sunday school most Sundays, moving around, and had sort of tangential involvement with the church at, the, at that point. And then later on, uh, when I got, <laughs> I guess, the ultimate paradox is when I was serving in nuclear submarines, that uh, sometimes I would play poker all Saturday night and walk down and give the Sunday morning sermon as the Protestant lay leader. Uh, (laughs) Perfectly comfortable with all that. But I think where uh, I finally came to have a a personal faith experience was in the wake of a a divorce and uh, the departure of my uh, kids with the going going to the mother. In those days, unless a a woman was unfit, uh, the kids always went with the mother and so that was that was a real wake up call for me and uh, I think it's uh, I've heard some people say thank god for adversity because that's when you you find that you you need those invisible means of support you you lean on the lord as it were and that's yeah. sort of what happened with me that's funny my my pastor when he, he
1: he was a he when he first came to our church he was a new pastor replacing pastor tom who had served in that role for over 20 years, and he was getting to know me and wanted me to get involved in some ministry, ministry projects he had in mind. And I said, Dave, you got to know that I, I curse, I play poker, and, and I like, I like some whiskey. He, and, and his response was, well, that's all okay, but you better not give me any shit. So, <laughs> so he, he wanted guys like me that were, that were real with him. At at one point in the book, you, you you summarize the early part of your life really beautifully. You say, born into a Navy family, educated at the academy, and submerged in a submarine for the better part of the next six years. When I finally surfaced in Harvard Square, my worldview was probably about 10 degrees at most, all to the right of Genghis Khan. After the year at Harvard, though, I felt like my universe had expanded a full 360 degrees. I walked into the right of Genghis and out with an A in socialism. So you described a little bit about being uh, versatile and being adaptable in in how you moved around. I wonder, do you think these divergent experiences with such a diverse array of people made you more able to empathize? Because you talk about empathy a great deal toward the end of the book and your work with ICRD that that. But what did you come to the party with a certain amount of empathy or did these experiences make you more empathetic?
2: I think it's the latter. I'm not so sure that I uh, would have described myself as empathetic in those days. But quite honestly, I think uh, why I uh, received so much from my Harvard education, both at the uh, master's and doctorate levels, was it was just I've always had a, a thirst for learning. Uh, and it, it seems to come naturally. And I, I almost feel like when I uh, discover a, a new idea or a, a new thought, it's like finding a golden nugget lying on the ground. And, and I suspect strongly that I will feel that way uh, all the way to when I cross over to the next existence. It, it's, I think I think life has to be a constant learning process, and, and people joke around about the fact that the longer I live, the less I know. And that's pretty accurate, because you, you know better, and what you know better is how much you don't know. And <laughs> so... So it's a it's a, it's an ongoing challenge, and I think life's really a big adventure, and it depends on your attitude, how you deal with it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was there was something else I was curious about. When you were first at Harvard, you described some of the student protests against Vietnam and how some of it was actually self-defeating. So I, I'd love for you to detail some of those experiences, as well as if you see any parallels with... Some of the extreme elements. We'll, we'll talk about various extremes, but in this instance, uh, some of the extreme elements on the left to, uh, of today.
2: Hmm. Well, I, you know, when I was uh, doing my master's degree at Harvard, it was 1966 to 67. It was that year. And uh, that was sort of at the uh, peak of the student protest movement, Students for a Democratic Society, and all the rest of it, a lot of anti <clears throat> Vietnam in Vietnam to the point where, you know, returning soldiers uh, in uniform would be vilified by the public and blamed for, you know, the whole episode when all they were doing was trying to uh, serve their nation. And I know that the whole time I was there at Harvard, the only time, one single time I wore my uniform was at graduation, but never in between, because it was, you were just inviting a lot of invective, if you would. And as as I looked at all of that, I did find so much of it to be self-defeating. For example, when they closed down the ROTC units at Harvard and elsewhere. For example, at Harvard, there was, I think, 75 young naval officers graduating each year out of the NROTC program, liberal-minded officers who I think would go far, far, much further distance in, in bringing about the kind of change the students were interested in than, you know, just taking over a campus for a couple of days. It was the, it wasn't very thoughtful. It wasn't very strategic. And I recall in one one instance I was in a class, I forget the name of the class itself, but it was taught by Michael Walzer, who was a pretty left leaning professor at the time, uh, very smart guy. But he was, he was advocating that, you know, our, flyers shot down over vietnam should be tried as war criminals he was celebrating the fact that uh, the students had taken over the campus at berkeley and, uh, and that's where i remember raising my hand on that one and saying uh, i don't see uh, how that's such a good thing what do they know about administration well that wasn't the point of course the point was you're trying to make a statement of protest against the system but but when you cut through that protest business, that veneer, you find that uh, what was going on really wasn't as logical as it should have been. So so I, I I really enjoyed my time there and I learned so much. And another vignette I'll share with you is I was in Henry Kissinger's seminar in national security policy, which is uh, there were only 22 of us in there sitting about around a big round table. And... Henry would periodically invite government officials up to uh, share their ideas on what it was we were talking about at the time. And at one point, uh, he had Robert McNamara come up, who was then Secretary of Defense, who was famous. He was a former president of Ford Motor Company and had uh, really brought a lot of change to the industry and uh, was hired by President Kennedy. To uh, bring that same kind of discipline to the Pentagon, and so he formed uh, a uh, structure at the Pentagon where, you know, b- before then, whatever admirals and generals wanted in the way of uh, equipment and the like, it was pretty subjective, and there was no rigor, no discipline to figuring out what one could really afford and what was needed. And uh, so he brought that kind of discipline, and and wasn't terrible popular military, the result of that. But he also was carrying the load of the blame, if you would, by many in the country, including students, for the Vietnam War that was taking place. And he arrived at our our seminar visibly shaken up because he'd been riding in a limousine that had been jostled uh, pretty significantly by protesting students. And you could tell he was uh, somewhat shaken up by that. But he settled down, and then uh, it, it was uh, a, a very informative exchange with him, but this gets to your empathy question, Corey. At one point, he, t- he spoke about how uh, there was a uh, protest effort going on in Indonesia, in which uh, communists and communist sy- sympathizers were actually being slaughtered. I mean, it was uh, the kind of thing that you didn't hear much about, but because it was communist, you didn't think much about it anyway. And uh, he spoke about how he spent sleepless nights concerned about that situation. And uh, of course, since he was on the the other side of the uh, the whole containment of the Soviet Union business, there wasn't anything he could do about it. But uh, it was a real wake up call for me because I thought to myself, you know, I, I, I wasn't aware that was going on. But had I been aware, I know I wouldn't have thought much about it just because those were the bad guys, so, so to speak. And, uh, and it, I, I just felt like, you know, the popular image of Robert McNamara was a Calvinistic computer. But this guy had heart. And I had the opportunity many years later to have a one-on-one dinner with him here in Washington. And this was after he'd written his book where he, you know, kind of uh, comes out and confesses to the Vietnam War having been a mistake and and uh, the lessons that he'd learned out of that. Well, he got pretty vilified for that book because lots of people had lost loved ones as a result of that mistake, but, uh, he was sincere in his regrets. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was kind of the, the empathy of, okay, it just because you label people in a certain way, that me, that doesn't effectively dehumanize a situation, which we always try to do when we go to war, dehumanize the other side, makes it easier to kill them. But, uh, that's not what life's about. And, uh, I think it's been a gradual uh, process, but that may have been one of the first touchstones, Corey, on developing some sense of empathy.
0: You know, I was curious, actually, if um, being on a nuclear submarine played into your philosophy about war and when... It's appropriate and when it's not appropriate, I mean so much of your life has been dedicated to peacemaking. I don't know what your theory of just war is, but I do wonder about just the power of being close to something so lethal and what that does to a person.
2: Yeah, you know that was that was one of the contributing factors uh, to my leaving the uh, Navy. There were other factors as well, but uh, this was rather accurately portrayed in a movie called Crimson Tide. In 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 which I think uh, Denzel Washington was playing the executive officer, and he was being given orders to, you know, they had he was part of the process for shooting one's missiles, and yeah, yeah it's hard for people to understand, but the explosive power on a single Polaris submarine now they're Trident submarines, but even in those days when the when the uh, warheads were smaller than they are today. You had on one submarine, you had more explosive power than was expended by all sides in World War II, uh, if you can feature that. You had these multiple reentry vehicles, uh, hydrogen warheads. I mean, you just totally devastate the planet on one one submarine. And that was one thing that started uh, to weigh on me was the morality of actually having to maybe fire one's missiles without a certain knowledge that one was under nuclear attack oneself and i find that i found that pretty hard to hard to take uh, huh. so so your point's well taken you know i i think there's a a great paradox between the fact that we tend to romanticize going to war you know when some other country is doing something that we don't approve of, or they've been sold us in some way or what have you. And everybody's marching off to war and, you know, every, and there's almost a, it's almost a celebratory occasion. Yet when you talk to anyone who's been in war, they don't want to talk about it because the horror of the experience is just overwhelming and they don't want to revisit that horror. So it's, uh, I think uh, humankind has to find better ways to resolve its differences or we're never going to achieve our full potential.
1: Uh, Doug, much of your work over the last several decades, forming the ICRD, all that organization does can be attributed to relationships that you developed and, and in a lot of ways was inspired by your involvement with the National Prayer Breakfast and the network around that known as the fellowship or the family. Now, I think it's unfortunate that some listeners may only know or be familiar with that organization from like uh, there was a Netflix documentary that seems to depict the fellowship mm-hmm. as something akin to like a, a, a satanic American Da Vinci Code type of group. So mm-hmm. I, I'd love for you to tell us a, the the real story, if you will, what the organization actually stands for and how you got involved.
2: Sure. What the uh it, it really all started back in uh The mid 30s, with a Lutheran pastor from Norway by the name of Abram Brady, who was in uh, Seattle, and uh, I don't remember the precise details, but uh, he was able to get the leaders, uh, the leadership in Seattle, to uh, meet regularly in a small prayer breakfast, and uh, they basically, long story short, they they took the city back from uh, underworld elements who were kind of controlling things at the time. He later came to Washington, D.C. and uh, did the, put the same sort of thing together on a political level, where you, uh, today, every week, there is a, a meeting of the House Prayer Breakfast Group and the Senate Prayer Breakfast Group. And this is where the senators uh, or the congressmen come together and meet, and they study scripture. More More particularly, though, they they uh, try to apply that scripture not only to their thinking about the broader issues of government, but also in their own personal lives. Uh, you know, it, it's important in these kinds of meetings that the people who are meeting are all sort of at the same level, because that gives you a comfort factor to share things with, with co-equals, if you will. But if there's Sort of lower-level folks in the room, and it's it's just like televising congressional hearings on C-SPAN. People play to the audience, and that sort of thing. So, one of the things that the the and in night early in early 1950s, President Eisenhower was complaining about how the White House was the loneliest place in the world, and and uh, one of his Senate friends in the Senate invited him to to uh, join their group, and this then led to the National Prayer Breakfast, eventually where the president always comes and speaks every year to, up till a COVID hit, it was about 4,000 people, uh, at least uh, about half or two-thirds from other parts of the world would come over and they'd meet and all this was done in the spirit of jesus so to speak it was it was not with religious labels you know i've i've met folks from different religions i had uh, i had breakfast on top of the ana hotel in tokyo with six japanese who were very solidly placed in their industries and uh, corporate levels and what have you and they were all uh, very excited about. Uh, providing a Japanese translation of my first book that came out in 1994, called "Religion: The Missing Dimension." Statecraft, and they were they were all on fire for Jesus, and uh, I, I was astounded at how on fire they were. Yet, not a single one of them found any need to change their religion. They were all Shinto, and and that's the case if you if you take Jesus not just as a, the central figure of Christendom. But if you take what he had to say about life and how it should be lived, just whether he believes the Son of God or just uh, one of one of the great prophets or or just you know a, 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 an intellectual, everybody reveres what he had to say and at some level. And you find that particularly in Islam, you know, he's one of the one of the prophets and a beloved prophet at that. You know, it's just there's about eighty percent overlap, I've concluded, between the two theologies. And while they believe some things different, they don't believe he was crucified. They do believe he's coming in the end time to uh, sit in judgment. And, uh, you know, there's probably close to 100 explicit or implicit references in the Holy Quran to the figure of Jesus. There's a whole chapter devoted to Mary, for example. And I, I, I recall in one situation where I, we were uh, trying to uh, reform the madrasas, the religious schools in Pakistan. And I, I, t- I took two board members over with me and we were visiting several madrasas in the country that were clearly identified with terrorism. They had links to terrorism. This first one was outside of Karachi, in a place called Dibori Town. Walked into the room and it was full of rage. Rage for, uh, th- these were all Islamists. Tough-minded Islamic scholars and madrasa teachers and what have you, and the rage had to do with the fact of uh, U.S. foreign policy, and more specifically at that time, Israel was locked in combat with Hezbollah in Lebanon, and whatever Israel does, the uh, U.S. gets the credit for it. So that, that was that, that was the source of uh, most of that rage in the room, and so. I tried to address that first by saying, that you know, while uh, the U.S. could be accused of uh, dealing with a double standard in the Middle East because of its strategic relationship with Israel, I said so too could Arab leaders be accused of that, who complain mightily of Israeli mistreatment, but then turn around and, and have a deaf ear to, turn a deaf ear to Palestinian pleas for humanitarian assistance. Wherever you turn, it's you know you you find double standards driven by political uh, self-interest. Furthermore, it's important for you to understand when the Americans have intervened in places like uh, Kosovo on behalf of Muslims, and you just need to take that into account. I said, but that's not why we're here today. We're here to we're here to see if we can't develop a better relationship based on a common religious understandings. I said, uh, you know, the the three of us who are here today, we happen to be followers of Jesus. And I said, uh, we know that you cannot be a good Muslim unless you believe some pretty wonderful things about Jesus. So I said, uh, let's ask ourselves, how would he, how would he want us to uh, behave toward one another if he were here today? You know, and 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 before I got to that point, I had quoted several things that I had memorized out of the Quran that a consolidated paraphrase of which would go like this. It says, oh, oh man, God could have made you one had he willed, but he didn't. He made you into separate nations and tribes. You may know one another, that you may cooperate with one another and you may compete with one another in good works. And I said, that's why I and my two colleagues are here today. We want to open the competition in good works. And by the time this all played out over the course of the next hour, at the end of it was not only was there an acceptance that rage had not only turned to acceptance, but it was almost bordering on fellowship. It was just amazing uh, how that worked. And the exact same thing played out in Madrasa we went to, which identified with the London bombers and Exact same scenario, exact same results. And uh, so it's, uh, and there were lots of other stories and anecdotes that go along with all that stuff. But it, uh, it just goes to show you that where all else fails, oftentimes religion, you know, 84% of the world's population gets their reason for being from their religion. So to purposefully neglect it and pretend it doesn't exist is just foolhardy. And that's what we've tried to uh, change uh, through the efforts of the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, recognizing what's important to people and trying to play to that.
0: Doug, I've looked at this. Along those lines, there's an exchange in the book that you pass along to the reader between a Croatian Pentecostal Christian and a Muslim mayor in Bosnia, and they they're, they're talking about, you know, how, how do we get along so well? Um, and the mayor says, I'm culturally Muslim, but I'm not a doubt, devout Muslim. But I'm very interested in your Jesus because of what your organization has done to alleviate human suffering. And he goes on to say, you have credibility with us because of your vulnerability with us, because you became vulnerable with us and helped us. I want to ask you about the balance here and how it informs Christians in public life today or re- people of religious backgrounds in public life today. A balance between, in this case, being the hands and feet of Jesus in service, but also being honest and truthful about what the Bible does and doesn't say, uh, all again in the context of public life. How do you walk that balance? How do you see that balance being achieved today? Because we certainly have voices, very strident voices, that emphasize rhetoric over service. And then we have those that emphasize service and maybe never get around or don't publicly a great volume, at least, to talk about some of these um, hard truths that we find in scripture?
2: Hmm. Well, it's a very good question. And uh, I guess one of the things that I, I mentioned elsewhere in the book is something was said by uh, a gentleman who was sort of revered as one of the most outstanding individuals of the 19th century, and his name was Abdel qadar And he was a freedom fighter in Algeria, fighting the French who had taken over, basically, hmm. and and um, a good friend of mine, by the name of John Kaiser, wrote a, uh, a book, a biography of him. Uh, it's called Commander of the Faithful, and the subtitle was The True Jihad. And when you look hard at the word jihad, you know, most of us automatically equate that with warfare, but that's not what was intended. It's, it, it's The true jihad is where you come to grips with yourself to... Uh, you know, to sort of overcome the demons that reside within you uh, in one shape, form or another. And that's, that's, that's the most difficult jihad of all. Well, this gentleman, Abdul Qadar, was widely known for his compassion both on the battlefield and off. And when it was on the battlefield, it really put the French to shame, as it would most people who are fighting. They're not particularly compassionate toward their prisoners. He was an exception. And uh, he tried to live his faith in, in every dimension. and at one point later in life, he was in uh, Damascus, and he essentially saved about 10,000 Christians who were under they were the victims of a pogrom that was uh, underway at the time. Uh, he saved them. And, and he was honored by President Lincoln, Queen Victoria, the Pope. I mean, uh, just well, one of the things he said, and I quoted in the book, is he, he talks about the fact that none of us, none of us know God in all. That's, we we all have a partial picture, you know, and this is very, very consistent with Old Testament scripture, you know, where in Isaiah, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My, You know, he's, God is, he's got the big picture. We only have part of it. Well, if you internalize the fact that you only Have part of the picture, then you know there's really no need to go slay the infidels. You know (laughs) we're 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 all coming at it from different directions, and and if each of us has a different part of it, maybe we do well to come together and try to share those parts. Uh, But and then you when you get to the balance of what Scripture says, it's so easy to distort Scripture to justify just about anything you want to justify. You take Osama bin laden for example you know and he'd always there's uh the passage in there about slay the infidels wherever you find them but then if you look at the very next verse in the quran it says except when they want peace and blah 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 you know it just
0: yeah i found that really instructive
2: yeah yeah and and of course of course when you when you're using uh scripture selectively like that like i say you can justify about anything but when you when you go back and get the context read the whole business, it's a very different picture. <laughs> my my go-to is let's keep reading. Well, that's interesting.
1: It's interesting that you would see that. Let's let's keep reading. <laughs> you know, context context matters. So there was one uh, quote that really summarizes some of the work from ICRD. It's just so our listeners can understand. You say, the most dangerous situation that we tackled while I was in the saddle was our work with the madrasas in Pakistan. Over our eight-year involvement there, we spent most of our time in the more radical areas of the country penetrating any number of extremist strongholds to conduct our workshops. The most dramatic involvement, on the other hand, was when we intervened with the Taliban in Afghanistan to secure the release of Korean missionaries that were holding hostage. Finally, our most strategic engagement has been the work we've been doing to reform the educational system of Saudi Arabia. So yeah. all over the globe and, and all different types of situations. So I I really appreciate that. And I, I commend folks to, again, you know, look up ICRD and how you can help support the organization. But Jess, you had a really interesting question about if in your involvement with the ICRD, what, what concerning trends you might be yeah. seeing?
0: Yeah, because I I you know a lot of this book talks about the the path to the present. And so it focuses inherently on the past, but you know, the work of ICRD is still going on. And and I'm just wondering what you're seeing and hearing about trends going forward in terms of of extremism. Obviously, I'm a devotee of your work and actually read it before, or maybe right after I came back from Afghanistan, I became aware of it. So that and that allowed us to meet each other. And, and what's so important to me is how I saw so many different religions bear on my own experience in Afghanistan, not just Muslim uh, Islam and Christianity. You argue, of course, that religion is a huge part of statecraft, of diplomacy. Uh, that it should be incorporated all over the world, Sri Lanka, Kashmir, Sudan, Bosnia, and that it would make a difference. I'm wondering how bridging this gap improved our nation's ability to spot extremist elements and what concerning trends ICRD and like-minded organizations see now.
2: Well, one of the things that uh, we've been doing, when I say we, I must confess to having stepped down several years ago. Uh, and have spent most of the time writing the book that you're talking about. But one of the things that we were doing as I departed was that we received funding to be able to go into some of these countries and to try to see if we couldn't enlist the more conservative members of those religious sects in, in developing the counters to the extremism, extremists. And the British had done a a bit of that with respect in London, but then it sort of fell by the wayside. And we became convinced that, you know, the only ones that the extremists will talk to are the ones who are uh, known to be very conservative in their outlooks, you know. But there are, so there are conservatives who are not uh, given over to violence. And, but they're not necessarily uh, opposing it either. And so yeah. what we were trying to do was figure out exactly how we could get them, engage them, and to inspire them to to counter that extremism, if you would. One, one thing that makes it difficult to generalize about this business is that every situation is unique. Uh-huh. Uh, it's driven as much by personalities as it is circumstances. And, and so when you do go into one of the areas of great, conflict and the like, your big challenge is determining the most strategic way to engage and to make a difference. And in in Pakistan, for example, it turned out to be an educational thrust. Mm. And that was sort of a bottom-up approach. In fact, we... We didn't let the government of Pakistan know what we were doing for at least the first four years. And we even kept our own government at bay because the president of Pakistan, uh, General Musharraf, had come out with a pronouncement that he didn't want any foreigners messing around with madrasas.
0: I think I remember talking with you. In those times, and you said, you know, you you can't tell anybody about this, but I was so fascinated with the idea that anyone would conceive of reforming madrasas by actually going to these very extreme and dangerous parts of the world. It was, you know, I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to believe in an outcome, a peaceful outcome to, to take that level of risk.
2: Well, you know, one of the ironies here is that at at one point, the State Department, early on at what we were doing, they caught wind of what we were doing. They asked if I'd come over and make a presentation, so I did that, and there were about 25 people in the room, most of them state, uh, some were AID, Agency Agency for International Development, and they, after I made my presentation, they all but asked me outright, please put in a proposal for this request for proposal that was coming out from the uh, Bureau of Culture. I forget the exact name of it, but it was one of their internal bureaus at state and this looked made the order. And so we did and several months went by. You know, I, I I was kind of reluctant to do it because we were we were in Pakistan and we weren't being very we were there in a covert capacity we weren't revealing who we were at the time
0: and getting american money put would put the program more at risk if you had federal dollars right
2: exactly exactly and that was exactly what was going through my mind but by the same token one of the things about icrd is uh ever since its inception in 1999 we've typically been hanging by our fingernails financially all the time you know so you really whatever revenues you could find you, you you didn't give them up lightly so re- with some reluctance i put in a proposal well several months went by and i get called over to uh USAID and there's a state department person there along with the top aid official and they said it's supposed to do this but of the 50 proposals that uh, we received yours was by far the most compelling But we just need to know how can we get past the political hurdles on this with respect to the, he's talking with respect to internal Pakistani hurdles. And uh, so we discussed that. But in that very same week, Musharraf comes out with this pronouncement about no foreigners messing around with madrasas, which which we were doing in a very big way. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so... So our State Department, uh, they immediately distanced themselves from us because they didn't want to put at risk Pakistan's cooperation in the global war on terrorism. Uh, And I understood that totally. So we kept going about doing our business. At one point, we concluded that the Pakistani government, there was no way it wasn't going to find out. We were having such an impact that this was going to come out. And we thought, well, better if it comes out from us and from somebody else. So, so we did a courtship and we invited top level madrasa leadership over along with the government officials from Pakistan over to the United States so we could show them how Islamic education was done here and this sort of thing. And we we put the courtship on and it worked. Uh, we never had any opposition from the Pakistani government. Our Our sole concern all the time was was were the extremists and and at least twice in in our time there we came under extreme pressure from the extremists i mean this is these were matters of life or death you know and and at one point i became so concerned that they knew down to the finest detail what we were up to and the next time over in pakistan i thought well i need to I need to uh, stay somewhere, someplace much more secure than where I had been staying because I hadn't been given my personal safety much attention. And, and so there were only two, two hotels there that provided pretty good security. One was a Marriott and the other was uh, the Sabrina and uh, Sabrina cost most. And Marriott was still ridiculous over $300 a night. I think it was stay away. so I stayed there. And two weeks later, that, that hotel gets blown up. You know, I think 160 people were killed and it was just, a. it was really so, so, so much for security in Pakistan. You know, yeah. uh, it just, uh, but that was always the, the great concern. And, and at one point I turned to our project director, who's the real hero in this whole story, by the way, he's a, he's a, a Pakistani American, uh, and, um, not only does he bear the burden of being an American while he was over there, but he's also a Shia. And Ooh, double whammy. Yeah, where, where we were doing business, uh, they did unmentionable things to Shia, really bad. But he is, uh, not only was he incredibly capable, kind of the best trainer I've ever seen, uh, but uh, he's also very likable. And, uh, and so when he would go into some of these extremists, places he would make friends with these folks to the point where that when they finally figured out he was shia they didn't want to harm him so we we, we rode that horse from sort of 2003 all the way up till now <laughs> so, <laughs> but i turned to him one day and i said look from now on i don't want you to ever mention our center's name in pakistan again i said we are just too visible and too targeted and and with that same week 3 days later out comes a an article in a, a, a periodical called afghan afghan jihad and it went to most of the terrorist cells in both afghanistan and pakistan and seven pages and it was all about attacking our work i still remember one paragraph starts out with the fact that we advocated things like tolerance and moderation and And women's empowerment and blah, 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 and and all of which were seen to be caustic to Islamic family values. And and so we were very targeted then. And so at that point, our indigenous partners actually sort of fled the scene as they should have. And... um, we had two years earlier, we had put in place a legal framework for an indigenous NGO that we would one day staff up and turn the, pass the baton to about doing this same work. So we energized that, took our project director. He left and became president of that indigenous NGO, kept things going, didn't miss a beat, but it was a lot safer because we had severed that American umbilical and he's done great Great work since, and it continues to this day.
0: That's great. Well, we're coming to a close here, Doug. But before we go uh, and ask you our final question, I do want to get you to briefly weigh in on something much closer to home. I think you and I have talked a little bit about the trend and the threat of Christian nationalism, and I just want to get you to weigh in on on that. First of all, I think we should clarify Christian nationalism as in the conflation of American identity with Christian faith. Do you have a sense of how how big numerically this trend is in the United States, how significant it is, and how you would counter it?
2: Well, I you should raise the question because ICRD now is trying to bring all the lessons learned overseas home and, and looking hard at the very uh, phenomena that you're talking about in the the extremism that flows from that sort of thinking, uh, that sort of characterization of what's going on uh, these days. I think that I don't pretend to have any great answers to all of this. You know, I I consider myself to be an evangelical, but I, I don't buy in at all on what so many others seem to have bought into. And the last, you know, our political uh Leanings uh, around the country these days, and I just I just think that there's an awful lot of people not listening carefully to one another. I think, for example, if you if you were a critic of of Donald Trump, you he he could be the repository for a lot of your anguish. But he's no different than the gentleman who was running for president. He didn't change at all. He same person, and all of his personal failings, if you will, were present for everyone to see. So you, you then have to say, okay, well, well what, is, what is the problem? Why, why did 40% or more vote in that direction? Well, they, they did that because I think there's skill to be shared by all administrations. One of the things we never did, we, we bought into globalization, uh, allegedly with our eyes open, but you know that in a globalized world that manufacturing is going to follow the cheapest labor and and so while the rest of the world starts to come up it's sort of at our expense in a way it's a a, a little bit of a zero-sum game and uh, as factories and the like were shut down and the business was sent overseas there was no concerted effort in this country to for a thoughtful retraining program for those who were affected by all and that still has has not come to pass i think there's been some lip service given to it by the current administration but but you know for a lot of people our system has failed it, it's not working for them and this was not the case when we were in a more of a self-sustaining mode and not connected so globally so there's just an awful lot, to, and and so how do you deal with the extremism? With the, you know, the by the same token, you have the concerns of the the fact that white population of the United States has always been the majority ever since inception, but now you know that that status is being called into question as diversity takes increasing hold, and you know how do you. How do you adjust people's mindsets to, you know, to get them to not feel so insecure by all that, but somehow figure out exactly how to celebrate that diversity and make it an asset where everybody wins. These are kind of imponderables that are underlying an awful lot of what you're seeing going on. And I don't, as I say, I don't pretend to have the the answers to those things, but I do think that some of what we have learned through our efforts overseas, you know, you, there is the opportunity to bridge differences between adversaries through commonly shared religious values. And we we have not done a lot of that in this country. We, I think, are kind of guilty of, if you will, of, because of our separation of church and state, we compartmentalize and we don't let our religious faith influence a lot of what we do in the marketplace. But I do think there's an opportunity here for us to sort of put religion on the table and and look hard at those tenets. you know what what did Jesus have to say about all this? I think we find that if we it's like I, I talk to Muslims that you know and they're trying to understand the differences and I say, you know your your goal, is to form a community, you know, they integrate their religion and politics, and their goal is to form a community on earth that will be pleasing to a lot. And I said, and, and you're, you succeed in that just about the same way we succeed about on turning our other cheek, you know, and loving our enemy. <laughs> it's, these are aspirational goals that neither one of us do very well. And, you know, once you start Conversing along these lines, and and can get people to sort of think about life as, as something other than a, a a brutal contest of wills. It that's the only hope you have. You know, is to reach some kind of understandings and agreements and that that are acceptable on all sides. Again, that sounds Pollyannish, but as I say, there's no easy answers on this business. We're at a real crossroads right now.
0: All right, well, let's go to our last question. Doug, any questions for us?
2: What would you say you have learned that was of greatest surprise to you as you're going about doing these podcasts?
0: Corey, I'm going to let you go first so I can think. Okay. Greatest
1: surprise. That's interesting. I'll say this, a really pleasant surprise. Is how folks with amazing contributions to culture, amazing stories vocationally, amazing life stories make themselves approachable and accessible to regular guys like me. And it's been really encouraging to get to talk. Doug, I, I never would have gotten to know you if it wasn't for Jessica in introducing me to ICRD and Encouraging us to approach you about this, but your approachability and willingness to spend some time with us. that's maybe that's not the answer that that you're necessarily looking for. You're looking for the content of what we've discussed. Mm -hmm. But that that's sort of the precursor to everything else that, you know, in your world, in Elizabeth Newman's world in I mean,
0: Dr. Moore's world,
1: Dr. Moore, Jake Sherman, David LaPante, like there are so many people that have spent some time with us that it's just incredibly encouraging to learn about their world, to learn about their contributions and to, to expand my own understanding of worlds that I never would have been exposed to your whole, you know, the, the, the beginning of, of uh, the first third of your life between, you know, uh, growing up as, as a, kid of someone in a dad in the Navy going to Annapolis, spending time on nuclear subs. You know, that's, that's just not something I knew anything about before. Mm -hmm. So just the fact that you'd spent time with us directly, as well as your, the work that you put into putting this book together, that has been a real pleasant surprise. Another, so that's that, that's the precursor. The sorry, it's a long windup. So, the but the other thing is, I've been surprised to learn that the extreme elements are not really the majority. The more people I talk to, even folks that you might consider far left or even far right, at the end of the day, when you get them one on one, we're just human beings. You know, and I don't think we can be defined as the caricatures that are painted on uh you know MSNBC or Fox or OANN or you know, so when you get to talk to folks at an ex in, in conversations like these, you know, where we really get to do some deep dives, it's it's also been pleasantly surprising that as as diverse our view, uh, as diverse as our views might be on any particular issue, I think most folks are not defined by those, by the extreme caricatures that, that were more human, three-dimensional, nuanced in our in our thinking. And that gives me hope that there's maybe some common ground to be found.
2: Well, you know, one thing I would say to just sort of underline that, Corey, is the fact that I... I answering my own question i think one of the biggest surprises for me was that when you take these uh, extremists for example and if you can work your way past the veneer of hatred and rage and all that and, and actually talk to them not only do they get get it but many of them go on to become personal champions of what you're talking about once they understand it you know and in a lot of these tribal-bound uh, cultures, there's not a whole lot of room for creative thinking. But I find that when you unleash that creative thinking that's sort of not otherwise unleashed, a lot of good things can happen. And I'll, I'll give you one example. a The lead paragraph of our teacher awareness module in the Madrasa workshops that we run was crafted by A Madrasa leader, Mm -hmm. I'm going to read it to you really quickly here. I have come to a frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element in the classroom. My personal approach creates the climate. My daily mood makes the weather. As a teacher, I have a tremendous power to make a child's life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor hurt or heal. In all situations, it's my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a child humanized or dehumanized. Now, frankly, that's the end of the quote, but I would be hard pressed to come up with something half that good. Mm. And that came from a badrassa leader and, you know, without a whole lot of training. Yeah,
0: that's, Amazing. what yeah, that's powerful <laughs> It was like poetry i I guess I guess I still have some prejudices there, and that just mm-hmm. really stuns me that there was that's a pretty beautiful passage. So Doug, how can we find out more about wait, wait, wait. you?
1: Jess, Jess, you didn't answer the question, but let me I'll, I'll give you- You
0: answered it for me.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I would
0: say I am becoming, okay, my, my two quick answers are these. I am becoming aware of trends that I would not otherwise know about because of the interviews that we're doing. And yeah. secondly, I have often wondered and or inquired about the religious backgrounds of people in political life. And sometimes that's welcome and frequently it's not, but under the auspices of this podcast, it is beautifully welcome because if you're coming on here, you have a reasonable expectation to maybe work that into the conversation. And I think it really helps me understand the person that's doing the writing and the reporting. And I've always been interested in what people believe apart from what they are writing about politics. So those are my two answers. Okay. Um, (laughs) Now. How can we find more about Mountaintops and My Ties and ICRD? Doug Johnston, take it away.
2: Well, uh, Mountaintops and My Ties came out in press uh, in September 28th of this year. So it's just fresh out. Been out for a month, basically. You can buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or through Zulon Press directly. And if I had to characterize what it's about, It it talks a lot about faith-based diplomacy and what that is and how it works and how you can make it work. But a not-so-hidden agenda is trying um, to—I take my own life's experience as an example of why people should not feel locked in to the boundaries of their own training and experience. You know, learn learn to— be more fearless. Become a risk taker. If you can, if you can reach beyond the boundaries of your comfort zone, to pursue a higher purpose, that will not only bring added meaning to your life, but to the lives of others. That's when I think you have sort of justified your presence on this planet for a short period of time. And so that's that's what the hope is here: is this will inspire people to, to think a little more broadly and to reach a little higher.
0: Love it. Love it. Well, ICRD. Yeah. ICRD has a website, right?
2: ICRD has a website, which is ICRD.org. And you can find a breakdown there of the various projects are involved in now, one of which is, is domestically trying to address those things you were talking about, but it's at any given point in time, it will probably be we're involved in at least a half a dozen places around the world uh trouble spots usually all but i think we've we're over over a dozen countries and only one i know of that didn't include an islamic interface because the you know the islam is kind of in the uh, in the news these days but in colombia we were trying to help reintegrate former combatants back into civil society which not is not an easy thing to do because their own communities don't want them back because they've been up to, you know behaving rather badly <laughs> so there's not a lot of forgiveness there but there we're finding that the women's networks are, are very helpful in this regard and also the spiritual networks not just the religious ones but indigenous spiritual networks which a lot of people overlook but we try to bring those
0: to bear as well. Fascinating. Well, we'd love to have you back again, Doug. It's always a fascinating conversation, if you'll have us. (laughs) Um, And as always, if you like this show, uh, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk some politics and some religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Great great exchange. I feel very enriched. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate
1: what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.